God, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I'd like to deal with some things that I think are important for us to know and to be aware of when it comes down to who is Jesus Christ and why is he important, and is he really important? Or is he just uh, somebody that is a fake or a fraud, and he wasn't really who he said he was? And today we're going to be looking at Matthew dealing with us and telling us how we can know that Jesus is for real, and he's not like this doctor that we talked about, just pretending to be something. There's questions that have to be answered, and I've got a couple of those here. How is Jesus going to, uh, before he came to earth, how, how is he going to be human and yet somehow defy the taint of human sin? How is he going to be human and then not be born a sinner and inherit that sin just like the rest of us did? And does Jesus really have a right to claim the Davidic throne? It's the Davidic throne that will be elevated in the millennial kingdom. Jesus said he will sit on that throne. Well, what gives him the right? How do we know that he should be there? And is he a true Israelite? Yeah, he's both God and both man, but is he a true Israelite? Matthew wants to help us accept Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed of God, the one that was promised. In the Greek, he's called the Christ, and come into a relationship with him. It's not good enough to just know about Jesus. It's not good enough to just know he was a good person and a great teacher. Maybe you even believe he died on the cross. So that's not going to get you into heaven. You have to put your faith on him. You have to put your faith in the fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and he did what he said that he was going to do, and that he is going to be the ruler of the universe one time here uh, for a thousand years as a person here personally, physically, and then for the rest of eternity. The genealogical information in this opening of this book is going to lay the foundation of what right Jesus Christ has to be called the Son of God and God's ruling Messiah. If Jesus is not of the tribe of Judah, if Jesus is not a descendant of King David, he cannot be a Davidic successor to the throne, but he is. And instead of looking it up, I'm just going to read for you Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Because the Old Testament laid the foundation for Messiah, predicted Messiah, said who he had to be, what he had to do, and where he had to come from. And it laid out all kinds of miracles that he would do, and it's good for us to know that. Jeremiah, speaking by the Spirit of God, said this, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. He will be called, according to Jeremiah, the Lord, our righteousness. If Israel believed her prophets, she had prophets that had hope in Messiah from the line of David. David is thus the center of the genealogy as we look at it in Matthew. Basically, we're looking from verse, verse uh, 1, the, the introduction, down through the conclusion in verse 17. If Israel were to believe what the prophets wrote, she had prophets that had hopes of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would save the world from its sins coming from the line of David. David is this central figure in the genealogy. That's why there are 14 people mentioned before David's name in verse 6b 
14 mentioned with his group, and then in 12 through the end of 16, there's another 14. And I think that's on purpose. And I think Matthew did it that way so that people would know this is the truth. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew, you take the letters of the alphabet and they stand for numbers. And you would have like a D, a Dalit, and then a Vav, and then another Dalit for his name, David's name. If you add those up in Hebrew, it comes to 14. Matthew knew that, and he has four, three sets of 14, and David is in the middle. Why? Well, because David is central to everything that is being done here. Well, let's take some time to read it, okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now, that's also the word for Christ, and that's what we're going to run to uh, always in the book of Matthew. Uh, but Matthew is doing this on purpose, and the translators want you to see Matthew is trying to prove that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And remember, the other name for Jacob is Israel. God renamed him. Verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Ammon, and Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Elihud, and Elihud was the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Methan, and Methan was the father of Jacob. Jacob, I want you to watch this verse very carefully. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. That word whom is going to be very important for us for understanding uh, the lineage of Jesus Christ, who is called the Messiah or the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now remember, the goal here is to prove Jesus has all the credentials that he needs that the Messiah would have to have, and Jesus has them. Verse 1, we find that in the history of the origin of Jesus of Messiah, uh, people are involved. Does that surprise you? Uh, God is going to use a line of people that was full of sinners and people who didn't do the right thing, and he brought them all together by his sovereignty to produce the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. 
this is going to be reversed in its order anyway in verse 17, but it doesn't change anything. It'll go from Abraham to David to Jesus. It shows the progress of how it is that he, a son, became the greatest of all of the sons of men. Psalm 110 uh, speaks to this, and I want you to look at that with me if you would please. Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1 says that, that Yahweh God is speaking, and he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my master, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The New Testament explains that it is Yahweh talking to his son, Jesus Christ, and he will be one who rules in Israel. That's a prediction from the Psalms about Jesus. So what's the purpose of the genealogy? How is Matthew using this? It shows the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, as he imposes his will on humanity to bring about the promised Messiah, who is the perfect one that is being prophesied by and qualified for the mission of saving people from their sins. Christmas is about the coming of the right one to do the only thing that the right one could do, and he had to be the right one. He is the son of Abraham. He must be, or he's not the Messiah. An ideal Israelite, the son of David, a man who has legitimate claim to the throne of his father David. It emphasizes the humanity of Jesus in its normal form in the middle of a sinful world. But there's a lot that is not normal about Jesus. For one thing, he was born without sin. He did not inherit Adam's sin. And he lived a sinless and perfect life so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. Matthew is focusing on the Jews, showing them that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's encouraging them to get into a relationship with Jesus. He is encouraging them to know with certainty that they chose the Messiah that really came from God, and Jews today deny that Jesus is the Messiah. They say that he really doesn't have the right pedigree. It's it's just all made up. There's no proof of any of this. Matthew wrote it down in the beginning of the first century, and Luke wrote it down, and they're following genealogical records that have been accepted all since the Old Testament scripture. Now, his, Matthew's, is different from Luke's genealogy that we would find in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, uh, which has 60 more names in it than this one. So we know that Matthew left some people out on purpose, Why did he leave them out, and why did he choose these people? Now, that doesn't mean that Matthew is telling us a lie or isn't being complete. It means he has a different purpose than did Luke. So if you read the one in Luke, there's 60 more names that you would have to pronounce. It's different than Luke's because he's trying to do something different. He wants to prove the legality of Jesus Christ as a son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants them to know there is no question that Jesus is and has the credentials that he needs to have. Luke's genealogy is different because it is an actual genealogy. In other words, he just followed the people that were all in the line. Matthew is emphasizing the legal right Jesus has to the throne. So he picks out certain names that are known to all that would show this uh, genealogy, and it's a legal genealogy. And the Jews would respond to that. He says Jesus is the righteous branch that God raised up for David, and we read that uh, from Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. In verses 2 through 6a, 
These are the generations of the family of Jesus from Abraham to King David. Now, Matthew's going to start at Abraham. He's going to go to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and goes back to Abraham. Uh, Matthew uses one through the, the uh, line of Joseph the father, and Luke uses one that is going through the line of Mary. Both his mom and his dad are from Judah. Both his mom and his dad have as uh, their lineage David and Abraham in their background. So on both sides of the family, Jesus goes back to Abraham. Jesus himself was perfect, but he came in a long line of imperfection. That's really what I want you to hear today. There's so much imperfection and sin and rottenness in the people that God used to bring about Jesus. You wonder how Jesus ever, ever made it here. Jesus is the only perfect one in the whole line. But I want you to understand at the beginning, God uses sinners like you and me. God uses sinners like us to do great things for God, to do great things for his son. And we are not perfect. We do sin. We do need repentance, but God can still use us. And here's some of that. Every person listed in the genealogy of Jesus was a sinner, some more than others. And uh, as opposed to some church uh, that is uh, in existence today, we have to say that even Mary was a sinner. She was not sinless. She sinned as a young lady. She sinned later as as the mother of, of Jesus, even though she was his mother. She is not to be venerated. She is not to be worshipped. She's just another human being. And so we would not rush to a supposed appearance of the Magigoria or Mary's appearing to people in a form all over the world, hundreds of thousands of people are flocking to these different places. These apparitions are asking people to build shrines to her. She is calling herself the Queen of Heaven, which, by the way, reminds us of somebody that's supposed to appear as the Queen of Heaven in the end days, in the eschaton, uh, in, in the area of the tribulation. Judah is the forefather of Jesus, and Judah was the one uh, whom the Bible said, the rulership of Israel will not leave Judah. So we know that if we have somebody who's the Messiah and he's going to be the ruler, he has to come from the tribe of Judah because Genesis, and I have that in your notes, I think, Genesis 49.10, there's a promise made by prophecy that the scepter, the ruling staff, will not depart from Judah. And so Jesus came from the line of Judah and he is a king. The point is that Jesus was the ruling uh, Judah was the ruling family of Israel, or Jacob. The scepter of rulership will never pass from Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar's a woman. Things get a little get, bit dicey here, and I want to tell you about that for just a minute. Why on earth, Matthew, would you bring up Zerah and his mother Tamar? Well, Judah back in the day, did not keep his word to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, after Yahweh took the life of Tamar's first two husbands. It says that they were wicked, and Yahweh uh, killed them, took them out, removed them. Genesis 38.7 and Genesis 38.10 talk about the death of those two boys of Judah that were supposed to marry Tamar, and they didn't do it. So what did Judah do? He promised that when his third son... Shalah uh, would, would grow up that he would give him to Tamar because she was in the family, 
because the, the boys had married her, but they died, but she didn't have any offspring, and she needs offspring. And her father-in-law promised her, I'll make sure that happens. I'm going to give you my youngest son. What, I'm supposed to wait around while he grows up? Yes, you are. And this young man growing up was being told, this is going to be your wife when you grow up. Judah didn't keep his promise. And she was without a husband, and she was childless. She disguised herself as a temple prostitute. And Tamar had relations with Judah because he didn't know who he was with, and she had snuck in there. Well, you have to ask yourself, what's Judah doing having sex with a temple prostitute in the first place? And Tamar had placed herself there to show his wickedness. And then this lady bore uh, these boys that are mentioned in this genealogy. Tamar is the first of four women, not counting Mary, that Matthew lists in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, this woman was a foreigner. She was a Canaanite. Her offspring came through incest with her father-in-law. Next was Rahab, a prostitute, a Canaanite, who lived in Jericho, who decided to have faith in Yahweh and joined the forces of Israel, helping the spies get down from the city wall and uh, staying faithful to Yahweh. God used this woman, despite her life of sin, to be one of the ancestors of the most important person on earth. And then there was godly Ruth, a godly woman who was also a Moabitess come from Moab who converted to Judaism. Nothing she did was illegitimate or unrighteous unless it was the fact that from her standpoint as a Moabitess, she married a man named Milan who was an Israelite. Remember, uh, their family fled to Moab to get away from starving to death in, in a famine. And there the boys, Milan, took Ruth as a wife, and he shouldn't have. It was against the law of God. An Israelite is not to marry a Moabite, but he did it. And then he dies, and then Ruth goes back with Naomi uh, into the promised land. Then there was a girl, unnamed in this book, here literally called her of Uriah. Maybe because it's a shame to Israel, I don't know, but Matthew didn't put her name in, but we all know who it was. Her name was Bathsheba. She was the wife of a Hittite man. Presumably, she was also a Hittite and, a, and a, in other words, a foreigner. Two things strike us about these women. First, they're not Jewish. Secondly, they married into interracial marriages. I want you to know in passing, because it's important today, we as Christians do not believe that skin color is something that matters in marriage. God does not look at skin color and say whites and blacks can't be married together. What God is interested in is not the color of a person's skin. God is interested in the color of a person's heart. Does it shine with the light of Jesus Christ? So the Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So we don't date people that aren't Christians. We don't marry people who aren't Christians. We don't get in business financially with people who are not Christians. We don't get unequally yoked with them. But that has nothing to do with skin color in marriage before God. But all of these had illicit relationships and illegitimate children. And their hearts weren't right. And they had to get right with God. Mary was accused, our mother Mary uh, of Jesus, Mary was accused of fornication and having an illegitimate child. That's the rumor going around town. 
Well, Joseph wasn't with her, and she was pregnant before they even got married during the engagement. So she's an adulteress, and the whole issue is she has an illegitimate child. We're all supposed to, what, just pretend that Jesus is okay? They had to fight that. God used their children in the development of his plan for coming to Messiah. God sees only one illegal union in monogamous marriages, and it is spiritual. Yeah, God is for one man and one woman to marry for life, and that's the only mate you ever have. What he is not interested in is spiritual adultery, where you marry somebody who doesn't love Jesus Christ, or they marry you and you don't love Jesus Christ. That's an unequal yoke that the Bible talks against, so we should avoid it. And that's a spiritual unequal yoke. God's plan in Jesus was to allow Gentiles into the production of the Messiah. Get that? Some people say that uh, the Old Testament uh, Gentiles had no way to come to salvation. That's ridiculous. We have Gentile women here that came to salvation because they became proselytes of Judaism. In other words, they believed that Yahweh was the living God. God's plan was allowing Gentiles into the mix for the Messiah. Uh, that, that mix for Jesus Christ included people that were Jewish and non-Jewish. And I think that's a sign that God wants us to know that he doesn't just love Jewish people. He does love all people, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And then verses 6b through 11. These are the generations of the family of Jesus from David to the deportation uh, to Babylon. You know, if we all had a choice uh, in our families and picking who was in there generationally, uh, we may not choose everybody that's our ancestor if we look and find out what it is. Some people get to, and spend lots of money getting into family, family genealogies in hope of discovering that they were actually descendants from royalty. I got news for you. If you were that close, they'd have contacted you. Uh, you don't have to spend money on a genealogy unless you're from a black sheep in the family. And uh, some people say, well, I want to know if I'm, you know, maybe the great-great-great-great-grandson uh, of a president or a king or something like that. Some people spend money and they find out in their search that they were descended from people like Jack the Ripper and other bad types and wish they'd never looked into it at all. I think I've said to some of you, I, when I was a kid, my mom and dad uh, decided to, they found in England the Hubbard Crest. You know, that makes you feel good. Maybe, maybe we are nobility. Maybe we, we were knights, you know, at the round table, and we had our lances and stuff and spears, and uh, Hubbard's was a, they were a great name to be feared by many, and they had those put on coffee mugs, which is the right place to put a, you know, your family crest, I guess. I even asked my mom, why don't we get that made in metal and put it on our wall at home? You know, I couldn't figure out if this is great. And then when I grew up, I ran across in another home people that had the same mugs and had our crest on it with a different name. <laughs> what? You stole our crest. And then I found out, because I got online, lots of people get our crest. Well, how important are we? Not. I'm not the real thing. Uh, my mom keeps hinting that maybe we have royalty coming down from... Uh, the, the, the monarchs in England, I'm not going down that road. I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's true, and I don't care if it is. But it could bother some people. The Hubbard Crest was a fraud, and uh, if, if I don't pick up those when mom and dad pass away, I'll give them to somebody else, or I'll just break them and throw them in the trash. That's all they're worth. And then my sister comes along when she was alive and decides to do a DNA test. 
and uh, her name is Terry, Terry Culley, and she did a DNA test. And I found out, uh, to my displeasure, I'm just a English-German white dude. That's it. <laughs> and there was nothing in there that I thought I was going to find. I was proud of my Cherokee heritage. <laughs> I was proud enough I learned Paul Revere narrator's song, you know, about uh, the Cherokee Nation. I could sing that. I sang it for some of you. And I always wondered in the back of my mind, why is it I can't even sneak up on a dead elk? You know, I think, you know, I thought maybe the Pawnee were better than that, or maybe some other, the Cherokees weren't as good as the Arapaho when it came to sneaking up on stuff, but I have other skills. And Terry's DNA showed that there's not even a drop, not even a tenth of one one hundredth percent of Cherokee blood in me. I was crushed. I lived my heritage well. I was waiting for somebody to say something bad about me, like I don't like Indians. I said, got news for you. I'm part Cherokee. No, I'm just a German white dude. I can't do that. And so I had to let that dream go. And that's all it was. Jesus is no dream. Maybe there's a messianic crest in heaven. Only one person deserves it. Everybody else is a fake. The list has David the adulterer, thief, and murderer, who's also the psalmist of Israel. Remember what I told you earlier? God uses sinners just like us. David was one. I think David was probably one of the worst fathers in the Bible. It included a wise man and a sick polygamist and adulterer by the name of King Solomon. It has King Uzziah, whom God struck with leprosy for the rest of his life because he was acting like he was a priest and did a sacrifice, and he was no priest. It boasts of Manasseh, probably the most wicked king that Judah ever had, that ever lived. Second Chronicles 33, 9 and 10. And I do want to take a second to read that. Second Chronicles 33. Here's Manasseh, David's uh, in Jesus' line, verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed from before the sons of Israel. Worse than a Hittite, worse than a Canaanite, worse than a Perizzite or a Jebusite, any of those sites. And he was a ruler of Israel and in the line of Messiah. And it says in verse 10, Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and to his people, and they paid no attention. He's in the line of the Savior. Imagine. Those people had the same problems that we see today. God speaks and we don't listen. To his credit, after over 50 years of godless rule, Manasseh repented of his sins and turned to God. And then in verses 12 to 16, these are the generations of the family of Jesus from the deportation to the Messiah. Here we find Zerubbabel. You know him because we studied about him in Ezra the builder of the, of the, of the second temple. Uh, these are the generations that include Zerubbabel, a man of God, somebody that walked with God and loved God, the great builder of the second temple, a temple under Ezra. And then Zadok, the priest of Yahweh, one of, the, uh, one of the godlier members of the entire family. Finally, there is an earthly adopted father of Jesus, Joseph. I want you to really look at verse 16. And it says this, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the father of Jesus, right? 
the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Now, does that say he was born by Joseph? By whom? Joseph, by whom? If we had a Greek text in front of us, we would be able to see that the word whom is feminine. It cannot refer to Joseph. It must refer to Mary. Mary, by whom? Feminine. Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Get this. If I have a human father and a human mother, I inherit sin from Adam. If I manage to get, not me, of course, but if I manage to get pregnant, Mary, by the Spirit of God, and there is no human father, I do not get in inherited sin. And that's how Jesus was sinless. His humanity came from Mary, and his father is God the Father. Spiritual, holy, pure, deity, God in the flesh. And the text, Matthew, makes it very clear. Joseph did not have anything to do with the making of Jesus. Then in verse 17, these origins of Jesus, the Messiah, go back to Abraham. And Matthew's emphasizing this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. And he wants to say, my friends, that corresponds, please notice, to King David. Jesus is from David. Jesus is the new Davidic ruler. Follow him. So what do you say? Boy, God was sure fortunate that things worked out through all that mess, isn't he? Boy, things could have went the wrong way just in a hurry. And I'm here to tell you they went the wrong way, but God used it, and it was the right way. If, for example, Milan had not died and Boaz refused to take Ruth as his wife, where would we be? Or what if David had, sin had not sinned with Bathsheba, which he shouldn't have, but he did, and then uh, never had a child that would be born to them, and then where do you get the Messiah? What would God have done to get Jesus to marry with that, with that not working out? But it is true that God sovereignly worked to preserve the line he wanted and he chose to bring about Jesus through all of history. Could anything have been different? No, it could not. In the case of the line of Christ, it must be true that husbands and wives came together by an act of the Spirit of God, by the divine, sovereign appointment of God. Consider Galatians, which I don't have time to do right now. It's in your book. I hope you look at it in your bulletin. Galatians 4, 23 and 29. What you learn is that in the history of mankind, there is a spiritual seed of Abraham and there is a physical seed of Abraham. Hagar and her son are the physical seed, not of God. But Abraham and Sarah, their seed is of God. And this has gone all the way down through time. If you belong to Jesus Christ... You are of the spiritual line. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ, you could become part of the spiritual line, but you're, not a, you're a part of the fleshly line. That's what Galatians is talking about in those passages. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. It was by human contriving, not by an act of God. One fathered by a human. Uh, uh, Hagar was his mother. The other one was of a spiritual birth by the Spirit's design. There are births that are accomplished by God for the purpose of advancing his divine program, whereby he keeps all of the promises that he has made. And how do I know it is spiritual? Because Abraham 
when he had his son, was 100 years old, way past the time a man could have a child. And Sarah, on the other hand, was 90 years old, way past the time of childbearing. It's a miracle. And the miracle of the lineage of Jesus, is that's a miracle too. Every marriage in Christ's line, every birth, despite human sinfulness, notice that, God is working with sinfulness of man on one side and the righteousness of God on the other, and then people who become righteous, but they're not completely righteous and perfect like Jesus, so they still have sin, and God put that all together to bring about the right person at the right time. I will not say that again. I don't know who you are. Sorry about that. I have to watch that. The point is this. Every person had a part in the birth of Jesus. Some came as a result of human design to serve fleshly purposes, and other come by spiritual design to serve purposes of God. And although this, this genealogy is messed up with sin, although it is just ripe with sin, God used that to bring about righteous Christ. And I was discussing this uh, when I wrote it a couple months ago. I was discussing this with Dr. Smith, who's the head of the New Testament department at Dallas Seminary. And we were going over this line of the spirit and line of the flesh. And he added a comment to what we were talking about, and I want to quote it. And he said, and yet God accomplishes his ends through both, through both lines. It's amazing. It's a miracle. I want to give you these applications. Number one, Jesus has the right credentials for the mission that the Father sent him to do. You can trust Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus, secondly, had no human father in his conception and thereby has no inherited human sin from Adam. That's how he escaped it. Thirdly, God included sinners and Gentiles in the plan to bring his unique son. Thank goodness for all of that. We're all Gentiles as far as I know. Thank God he's willing to include us in some very important steps in bringing about salvation because salvation is meant for us as well. And finally this. Jesus is the Messiah and as such the Savior of the world. That issue is firm in Scripture. But we need to be concerned about, do I really belong to him? That's what we need to know. Am I really a child of Jesus? We're going to transition here for our uh, time around communion. Okay, and thank you. I was just going to panic there for a minute. I'm going to go ahead and get my top one ready. Since I'm in Matthew, I'm going to go ahead and use Matthew's account of the communion service, and that's in chapter 26, verse 26. The whole point is this. This table reminds us of what Jesus Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection for us in the past. And he said, I want you to eat this meal together as the church, as my body, in fellowship with me, to remember me and to look forward to the fact that we will celebrate a meal like this in his kingdom. So we're looking back and we're looking forward. If we belong to Jesus as, as our Savior, and all you have to do is what I told you earlier, if you don't, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, tell him you believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, and ask him to come and take his dwelling in you. That's the Spirit of God moving in. And you get salvation for free. You can do that even before we take communion. 
Because if you don't know Jesus, you're not supposed to take communion. Because there's penalties if you do. Because that's misusing the Lord's name. But this is a celebration. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of its fruit of the vine until from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then they did what we're going to do after we're done, and that's sing a hymn, and uh, we'll go out and enjoy our fellowship together. Um, we're going to have a time where you can just uh, pray and meditate on the Word of God, and I want to read something. Uh, Becky brought this up to me. This can, comes out of that devotional book we gave everybody, and uh, what I'm going to read is while she's praying, and maybe you, I'm playing and you're praying, and listen to these words and how they fit in with uh, the communion service, okay? So maybe bow your heads and pray and listen as, as we go through this. The author says, He was born to die. He came to address our condemnation. His name is Jesus. And on this side of eternity, it all started in a manger in Bethlehem. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. William Dix wrote the words of this hymn. Why lies he in such mean estate, where ox and donkey are feeding? Good Christians fear, for sinners hear, the silent word is pleading. Nail spears shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, the cross be born for me and you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Randy, would you bless the cup and then we'll, I mean the bread and then we'll partake of it. this bread in remembrance of him. As Becky plays, I'd like you to think about the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ, who allowed us to be in a new covenant with him. And then when we're done, I'll ask Brad to lead us in prayer for the cup.
bread. Our cup, as usual, represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed so many years ago. It's that blood that cleanses us from sin. We do this in remembrance of what he did. We'll have our praise team come. pray with me please heavenly father just thank you again for um for your perfect plan and for the blood of jesus that washes our sins lord i thank you for uh, the service in this day lord i pray that you'd watch over us and protect us and keep us safe this week and bring us all back again next week uh, to learn more about you and more about your word in jesus name amen